Dr. Hélène Beaulieu, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. It's a lot of fun. So this is going to be my first um, video podcast. So I'm really hoping this is going to go through okay. Uh, for And if it does, um, I will post a link, a YouTube link in the show notes. So for those of you who are used to listening to the show um, on Apple or Spotify or on your podcast app, you'll be able to actually view us on YouTube. So I'll post a link to that. So again, thanks for joining me for this first video episode of Planet B612. Well, it's my first <laughs> as well. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah, so let's get to that. Actually, you're, you're the host, uh, co-host, I suppose, of a show called Beyond the Test Tube, uh, where you interview various um, people and, and you uh, speak about various topics in science and science communication. You're also a University of Ottawa assistant professor in the Faculty of Science. Uh, you've done a lot of research in the past, like you said, 100 years ago on various um, various Various things like inflammation, for example, which is to me extremely fascinating. Um, and now your interests have really switched a little bit to innovation in education, if I'm getting that correct. That's correct, yeah. Okay, so why the switch? Uh, well, you know, we all have different interests. We all, well, most people have several interests in their life, right? So I had a real interest when I was younger about research and lab science. And, you know, I still have interest in science, obviously. And, and as I grew older, I kind of felt like sharing that. <laughs> mm -hmm. so I kind of felt like sharing it. And so I kind of jumped into education. I liked spending time with the uh, junior faculty like or the uh, graduate students in, the, in our lab. And um, so I thought, yeah, yeah, I think I'm going to do <laughs> the jump into education. I thought um, that was really interesting and like a different thing for me to do. And I kind of got tired a little bit of working in the lab. Um, I, <laughs> I think I got a little bit depressed, you know, because things don't always work. And, uh, you know, using mouse models, they take a long time. And then if it don't, doesn't work, then it's six months. <laughs> You've just yeah. lost. And it can great, right? So, so, um, so, yeah, and the whole research kind of culture where the competition is so fierce, right? That kind of, I didn't, I have no, there's not one atom of my body that's competitive. So I just, I just, I, it wasn't me in the end. So I, I couldn't fight with tooth and nail in order to develop my own lab. So, so I thought I, and, and I liked education. So I went, I'm just going to do that. And as I started teaching, I was like, oh, oh, this is not, <laughs> I don't know anything about teaching. So I kind of had to learn new tricks. And when I learned these new tricks, I thought, this is wonderful. I mean, there's a psychology involved in it, sociology. There's all sorts of things that, you know, obviously was of interest to me that I never really dug into. So, so that was kind of like, oh my word, <laughs> what a good switch in career. I was really happy with that. I'm sure it keeps you on your toes. So you've been a professor for how long now? Since 2013. How long is that? So okay. So like only, eight years. Yeah. So it's only been eight years. Years, really. yeah. Feels like a lifetime to be honest. <laughs> so, but prior to that, you were a researcher, I guess. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I never had my own lab, but I did my PhD in Manchester in the UK. And then I did a postdoc in 
beautiful Melbourne in Australia. I was really lucky to get there wow. in a wonderful lab by uh, Professor Eric Morand, who is was an absolute gem <laughs> of, a, of a, a boss, really. But uh, yeah, no, it was a wonderful experience. It's just that at some point, you know, yeah, and then I came back to Quebec after that because we thought Australia, as beautiful as it was, <laughs> it was really far. And um, uh, so, yeah, so we decided to come back to Canada. And then I, I tried a little bit of a lab for a while. And I was in a really good lab, but I didn't feel like I was pulling my weight as much as the young ones who were really getting into it. And I thought, you know, and I was really liking spending time with the students instead and trying to help them out instead of doing my own project. <laughs> so I think I went, oh, maybe uh, teaching would not be a bad idea. So cool. yeah. So I brought you on the show because I've been on your podcast and uh, we talked a little bit about uh, post-secondary post-secondary education, uh, mostly, you know, the problems that we see with it uh, in terms of how we could improve it. Um, of course, you know, I, I shared my opinion as somebody who was a seven-time dropout. Uh, back then, I didn't have any personal experience being a university professor. Now I do. Uh, so it, I come to it from, it's interesting because I don't want to share my personal experiences as a, as a professor, but I do want to share what I have heard in circles of academia because the funny thing happens when you become a professor is that people open up with you because now you become part of the, 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 the group. <laughs> You're part, part of the gang, you know, you, you suffer for academia uh, along with everybody else. But the things that I, I learned intimately from my experiences in, in, in speaking with people around the world, because most of my followers on Twitter are academics. And so there's this kind of like worldwide collaboration, as we've already discussed about Twitter, especially science Twitter. There's all sorts of academics on Twitter. But there seems to be issues that people have in common. And I've, I've really divided this podcast episode into a few, a few subjects, a few categories. And one of them is to speak about the staff experience, you know, professors, and then the experience for students and how both of these could be improved. Um, because if we're not making constant improvements, then we're just going to stay in, in old, archaic, uh, traditional ways of doing things, which might not reflect what the future needs. Um, so first of all, let's talk about staff uh, and professorship and things like that. I wanted to know before we start into that, are you a tenured professor? No, no. Okay. So my position what is contra contractual? <laughs> Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Contract. Yeah. Um, and it's only been in negotiated this year that the people in my position, which we traditionally call science lecturers in the Faculty of Science, who have been in position. So I've been there for eight years now, but others have been there for 13 years. And you think wow. you know, they kind yeah. of, <laughs> and they had to renew contracts every three to five years. But they were um considered in all other um capacities as full-time professors but but yeah this year they've negotiated that uh we're we're will be just uh, able to apply for a permanency and 
that okay. should take care of it if yeah if just well <laughs> i want to clarify for people who are not uh, familiar with academia but usually the aim of a professor is to become this like what's called a tenured professor which is really almost like a golden job opportunity because you really have a protection to to almost say anything do anything research anything it's really kind of like a permanent like you said a permanency you become a permanent member of the university um, staff. Uh, so is that still something that uh, young professors aspire to become? Is it is it is tenure really the, the ultimate goal? Well, I can't speak to everyone, but who wouldn't want a permanent job? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. But the other thing is that with um, the type of work that you do, you need to be free like thought of, you know, to be able to say research and, you know, kind of discuss things. And that's the whole point of being tenured is that, so you've shown that uh, you're efficient, you you work well, and, you know, you pull your, your academic weight around the institution and you've proven that you're a, a, a good scientist or a good researcher or, a good member of your academic community and um, and then you can actually be free of you know so so you there's no uh, like uh, we say in french epidamoclase i don't know how to translate like a repercussion that. so so yeah well the, you know obviously if you do something completely awful there yeah. would be repercussion but they can't be because you kind of publish a piece of 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 science or a research whether you're in social uh, kind of uh, social sciences uh, economics or whatever it is that is contrary or is new or is kind of like you know it's kind of you know uh, shaking ideas that you won't so so you're, you're you have the freedom to do that right you which would to- be like back in the day when they used to to argue a long, long, long time ago that the earth was round and that was you know, a big deal back in the day, yeah. you know, oh, no, no, it's flat. And, and now well, it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you have professors have amnesty for saying the earth is still flat. But it, it is, uh, like you said, it is uh, this amnesty, I think, is, is the right um, the right way to, to, to describe it. And the reason I'm asking that is because you have this weird system that I wasn't aware of until I actually became a professor. And and um, and started, you know, learning more about how structure works in academia, which is you have the adjuncts, you have the assistants, you have the associates, you have the professional professors, oh, you have yeah. all of these um, kind of uh, hierarchy. hierarchy. Well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of the ones that really concerns me is the young adjuncts. Um, I think I brought it up on your show, which is that I'm hearing that, you know, they're 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 graduate students frequently or just graduated with a PhD or whatever and they're they're in an adjunct position and they're paid like 20 grand you know they're I mean I don't know how it is in Canada but in in, in the United States that's a big concern where you know these adjuncts are essentially not being paid very well and being overworked um you know with the kind of promise that no. oh well if you keep doing this we'll give you something better later what yeah, do you think I think about it's that? different. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it, but it's different in different disciplines. Right. So it's not quite the same in science. So in adjunct in science, as far as 
my experience goes is somebody who has a full-time position elsewhere but is associated with the university so has certain tasks like uh, have um, for example they can be examining thesis for master's students or phd students and or they could be giving away classes or you know they participate in some of the academia in some way but they have they have their full-time employment and they're, they're just kind of you know recognized as being a member of the outside of university community who can contribute so they're not paid actually at the university okay it, that's it's like a, it's like a some sort of limited partnership if you want like, so maybe then the word I'm if not you're using in adjunct, you can have a graduate student in your lab if you're a person who works at the OHRI, for example, which is a hospital uh, in Ottawa, but you don't have a position at university, but you can still have grad student because you're an adjunct. Right? Okay, so I guess the, the word I'm looking for is the you know the new PhD, newly minted PhD who's starting. I think I mean I, I've heard the word adjunct and that's why I brought it up. But maybe that's different in the United States. Uh, a lot of my contacts are American, so I hear a lot of and and on TikTok you hear a lot of TikTokers now who are coming out and saying we are having to take second jobs because we're not making enough money as professors. And I think the reason I'm bringing this up is because there seems to be a problem. In, in the way that money is just distributed in universities where perhaps being a professor is not as great of a career for somebody who just did eight years of education. <laughs> well, yeah, so that's true. And I think that's because the number of students is getting higher. Uh, you know, it's expanding every, every year at university and the number of professors hired does not reflect that. And in order to deliver a lot of the courses, it's part-timers. So part-time professors is probably what you're looking for here in yeah. Canada. Yeah. So adjunct system in the United States, actually, I don't know it very well, so I wouldn't be able to comment on that. But here in Canada, you have sessionals. So you can have a postgrad or a PhD sometimes, but normally you'd have it have to be a postgrad in order to be able to um, teach uh, at, well in science. I don't mm -hmm. know about other fields, but in science, you would have to have a, probably a PhD to be able to teach a whole course. And then you paid for that particular course, however long it takes you. So it's about eight grand, right? And right. <laughs> teaching a first course, like a full 45 hour course is, um, is more than yeah so it, you don't reach minimum wage at eight grand <laughs> it takes a long and that's time. i think you know that's i think a concern and i you know I, i've uh, frequently in the past called out universities for doing that because you know here i am with a high school education <laughs> working really you know doing really well in technology in a field where i didn't even have to do a university degree and i have my friends and colleagues who are starving essentially trying to, to, to make it up the ladder as part-time and, uh, you know, and so that's something I just wanted to bring up on the show because I think it's a, it's a tragedy. I think it's something that the university systems need to fix. And I'm hearing that they're using the more is, and more part-time. The university's fault necessarily because okay, so tell me actually are trying to survive. <laughs> okay. They're okay. being squished and squished and squished. And, you know, like uh, Ontario is the worst province 
that is actually taking funding out of post-secondary education virtually every year. They've um, they, so they're squeezing the money, and this is why in Ontario the tuition fees are higher than everywhere else in Canada because the government is not funding post-secondary education the way other provinces are funding theirs. So if you look at Quebec, for example, then professors are not <laughs> paid as well as they are in Ontario, like full professors or, you know, people uh, like me, for example, who am extraordinarily lucky, but, um, but then the cost of living is less in Quebec. So, you know, it all kind of uh, give and take a little bit here and there, but the tuition fees for the students are really low compared to Ontario. So I don't think it's the university system per se, the university is trying to survive. So it can't actually have as many professors as it would like to have ideally, because it has to hire people that they pay a third of the wage of a professor in order to be able to teach all the courses that they actually gathering. And if you think about the science at the University of Ottawa alone, we have about, I don't know, 2000 science students maybe like at least coming in in the first year they don't all graduate that you know that's uh, they, they just veer off to different kind of programs and that's okay but the retention is still quite high and carlton the university right next to us also have hundreds of students toronto has how many thousands of students york western Guelph. so how many students in science do you need <laughs> so it's offer and demand right so the phds in science are a dime a dozen right right so i guess the solution to that problem then it would be to just petition the government for more funding for the universities is that what you think would be uh there's the best that. there's federal government for more money for research which is mm -hmm. like for, if you compare it to all the other uh, Western countries is peanuts mm, yes. <laughs> to GDP. Mm -hmm. So Canada is not funding science as much as other countries are. And we're not fund well. So our education system is well funded compared to other <laughs> countries, I'd say. But still, uh, it's still constraints because the tuition fees, we're trying to keep them as low as possible, which is, I think, is a good principle so that hopefully everybody can go to university. But that's still not true at, the, at this point because the yeah. tuition fees are quite high. And um, so, yeah, so, and how many people do you need to, to have in university to do a science degree? Yeah, so it is It is something I just want to also, um, you know, most of my listeners are Americans. And uh, so we, we're talking about Canadian universities, which are largely, I think, all funded by the by government. Um, I don't even know if there are that many private universities in Canada or if there are any. But um, so for, for, for us, the situation is different. Uh, where I think the Americans might uh, take objection is when they're talking about their privately funded universities that are paying them peanuts. But I think that's a topic for another day. <laughs> but what, what do you see? Because to me, I brought up salary as, as the first thing that I keep hearing from people. I, you as a professor, what do you see as the main issues that are challenging for staff in universities in Canada? Oh, boy. Uh... So I think one of the main issue is now is having stability. 
-hmm. So there are like uh, universities who do one year contracts. So you've been uh, teaching for 15 years on one year contracts. I mean, come on, <laughs> you're going to need me next year as well. <laughs> so just give me a job that, you know, I don't have to reapply for my job every year or, you know, come Christmas, you know, because I know I have to redo my job in January. I, and I just hope, you know, for the uh, Christmas wishes that my job is going to be renewed because who knows, right? The Laurentian just tanked <laughs> a huge amount. So you never know really what's going to happen. But so, yeah, so job stability, I think, would be one. So working as sessional is, uh, you know, you can work in three different universities, do one class here, one class there, one it's completely mental. So right. those people, so so I feel for those people who have, you know, who are passionate educators and the system is just treating them like garbage. This is <laughs> I, I hear it's this not too. necessarily the people who hire them. It's kind of like we don't really have the I don't, I don't know where the actual, who decides to make contracts or not contracts. I don't know where this, these decisions are, are made, it, but that is actually, I think what's grating a lot of people. Yeah. And, and I saw a TikTok video recently of a fully tenured professor in the United States who was only making, I think he said $50,000 a year. And he was saying how, um, and this was at like a, a I think a smaller mid-level university in the United States. But what he was saying is that we need to start telling our wonderful PhD students who want to become professors what it's actually like in the real world of being a professor, because a lot of them, including himself, was not expecting to have to deal with, you know, the, the one year contracts and all that stuff. So perhaps bringing this to the limelight, it's not to discourage students, it's to give them a reality check. This is what you have, you, this is what you can expect and perhaps become comfortable with insecurity and you'll be just fine. Yeah. The thing for me that's difficult is that I don't know how job stability actually works in other fields outside of academia, because I've always been in academia. So, you know, when I was, uh, so you, you do your PhD and you know, you're going to stay there for a while, as long as everything's still working out fine. When I was doing my postdoc, postdocs, it depends where you are, but you know, in, in the UK or in Australia, they're jobs. So you get a contract for sure, but you know, for two, three, five years, it depends on which kind of contract you're on. You're going to be, you know, hired for that amount of time. And so you can actually get a mortgage. You actually have a pension, you know, it's a job. Right. Interesting. Not in the United States and not in Canada. Mm -hmm. So the, so those systems are different, which I think is where one of the biggest issue is for people who do these PhDs and, and then you have to do what, two, four, five, you know, five years as a postdoc and you're paid in Canada. Like again, you know, I might be uh, slightly wrong here, but. I think it's around 40 grand. That's the stipend okay. per year for, for a science post grad. And they're very rare because it's much cheaper to have a PhD. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's no wonder 
I used to I used to joke because uh, I I've known a lot of people who who did their PhD in science in in, in various um, topics in science and who ended up on anti anxiety meds because couldn't pay their bills were stressed out um, you know very and and it, it's you know I laugh about it but it's really a serious issue because it is some uh, a high pressure you know even even in the postdoc it's it's high pressure and then you want to try to compete for a job and eventually maybe get a, a role as a professor if you can even find it in Canada, if you're lucky enough. Um, but I don't so, yeah. know how it compares to other like type of work. Like uh, if you're a farmer, for example, mm. I have no idea. That must be stressful as well, right? Yes, no it idea. is. I mean, maybe you don't yeah. study for 10 years to be a farmer. <laughs> But I think the expectations are different, you know, like for, I can I can only compare it to my work in technology, for example, if I had the kinds of expectations that academia had of professors at my job, I would also go crazy. But I didn't have that in technology. I think the expectations are you you bill for an hour that you work. You don't work for free. That's one thing in, in professional life is you never work for free. Or if you do work for free, it's because you choose to do a favor. No, it's I never expected of you. But you'll never yeah. work, you know, yeah. for $8,000 for a contract that's like 60 hours a week. That would never happen in technology. I think that there's, um, there's an aspect to it is that it's kind of like a vocation, right? That's what so, it is. So yes. it's like a vocation. So if when you go into science, you don't do it for the money. I mean, yeah. because you're going to be disappointed real quickly. Yes. <laughs> yes. You do it because it's a passion and you absolutely love what you do. And to be honest, being a professor is wonderful in a way that I'm not, um, I can do pretty much what I want. I mean, I have certain expectations of me for sure but i can decide what i want to research on i can you know go and you know as long as i can get funding in order to be able to research what i want i can really go for that and i can talk to people who are like me uh, you know in the same environment and then i can go and uh, so i don't so you're really free in what you're doing in a certain way which is, yeah. you know, absolutely wonderful. And you don't necessarily see that in other types of... Uh... So if you work for a company and you're programming games, right, you kind of have somebody who wants this game like this and you have to do it like that. And it doesn't matter if you're a fabulous artist that, you know, depending on how you want to draw something, this is what I want. So you're going to draw it like that, right? So you kind of have this freedom taken away in a certain well i don't know um, i think that that's a uh, highly de uh, environment dependent um so if for if for example you worked for a big game company like ubisoft uh for example just uh, any game company electronic arts uh, blizzard um it would be like that because they really have a vision in mind but the startup companies don't the startup companies will hire you for your creativity so that's really environment dependent in the in a professional stand um, standpoint but you're right. I think, you know, we can't necessarily always talk about the negative things. I, I did want to talk about the challenges, but you do bring up something that is very, um, you know, that's the university professor experience is that it is a vocation. It's almost like becoming a priest. It's almost like doing something out of love at, um, that is. It's not, not a religion. religion. It's not a, well, <laughs> some people treat it like a religion. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, everybody, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. But, um, 
But no, it is it is something that is traditionally underpaid and valued as a passion rather than a professional designation where you would be valued for your knowledge, which is, you know, I think where people find issues with it. Um, I want to move on from this, though, um, and and speak about the student experience, because to me, that's that's where, you know, as a as a university dropout, um, I, I can only speak to the experiences that I had in the 90s and early 2000s. And, you know, it's tough because I was a gifted kid in elementary school. I don't know if I told you that last time, but I was gifted. And for me, things were, were always too easy, right? So you get into university, they're, they're, they're super easy, um, often super disorganized, depending on, on who, what the program is or whatever. But <laughs> I just, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't work for me. University just didn't work for me. I ended up learning better on my own. Um, so that's my experience as a student. So I didn't really last the full four years. I never got beyond year one. Um, but from your perspective as a former student and now as a professor, what challenges do you see for university students today? Okay. So just before I answer that question, I just want to yep. make a small parenthesis here about the comment that I said about we have thousands and thousands of students in science. Do we need that many? And that comment can be turned in, if thousands and thousands of people want to study science, they should be allowed to do it. Yes, I, I, I got that, but I, I'm glad that you explained it. Yes. But I want to make sure, I want to make clear that all the students I have, I, I don't think you're, you're not doing the right thing in studying science. I'm just saying, you know, your expectation of a career it has to be reasonable and you have to know the competition, right? So, so I'm just yeah. saying that. But anyone who wants to study science should be studying science if they want to and they should be allowed and they should have the opportunity to do so. So I think having thousands of students in that sense is not a problem. But when it becomes difficult is for the student experience, as you say, because they are in a sea of students then this quality rapport that you can have with professors is kind of not necessarily present. But I'm not sure whether students are actually wanting this. So I'm in a kind of, huh, because when I, I've been, I'm like super introvert. My experience as a student is I'm happy to sit in my corner and receive wisdom. <laughs> and think about it and mull it over in my own head. I didn't need to have like a a friendship with my, <laughs> or like a mentor or mentee kind of relationship with my professors. I didn't need that at all. So I didn't want it. I, I was not looking for this. I was just, I just wanted to kind of get to grips with the material and do it in my own way. So, but then I I think that for me, the role is to kind of, show the student, you know, the different possibilities and the, what's out there that maybe they didn't know of and kind of try to make them think about it and how it can apply. So, um, so does it fit everybody? I don't think so. I don't think that for we're all different and the way we want to receive information or the way we want to tackle certain subjects are different between different people. I don't know if you actually enjoyed going through high school because you finished high school, but you didn't do university. 
Did you enjoy high school? Did the high school fit or did you have to go through it because you had I, to? I, I had to go through it because I, I you know, you, you couldn't, you know, it was one of those things back in the days, you had to have at least a high school, high school diploma to get a job. You know, yeah. nobody was hiring somebody who didn't have a high school diploma. Nowadays, <laughs> well, no, I, I would say nowadays you have to have at least a bachelor's for most non-tech jobs, let's say. All right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, in the I job think, market. Because I've been scrolling down for jobs for my, <laughs> my teenagers. Okay. <laughs> And I know that a lot of them actually ask for CGEP. Like, uh, yeah, because I'm on the Quebec side. Um, so for people who don't know what CEGEP is, is kind of an in-between between high school and university that we have this weird system that's like the sixth form mm -hmm. college in, in Britain. But um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, high school is like <laughs> it's just something you have to get through. Yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, a lot of people will tell you a bachelor's degree is what you need unless you're really entrepreneurial and you can manage on your own. But yeah. I, I think, I think that nowadays, so, so one of the challenges that universities have now is because they're being told by the people who hire people that they're not actually forming the students for the jobs that they need. So I think fle being flexible, shorter programs, um, you know, like professional development programs, micro-credential certificates, all of these kind of uh, should be developed a little bit more. So I think as a body of knowledge and as a keeper and finder of new things, the university work well. So the research and the core program should stay there, but we should also have satellite programs for people who don't necessarily need to do a whole bachelor's degree, for example, and do you want to have something more applied or, you know, more flexibility in our programs to serve a different type of population, I think we could actually have something that's really valuable there. Because I don't know if, so there are technical schools, like uh, I'm thinking about colleges, like the Algonquin College, for example. Mm -hmm. Whoa, or Ry Ryerson. Schools. Yeah. Even Ryerson, you know, which is a technical university, I consider it a technical university. Um, but I, I want to bring up a point that you just made, which is that to me, what's I find it fascinating that universities are hearing that they're not, you know, properly preparing their students for oh, totally. the yeah. working world because one of the the realities of students that they have to deal with is university marketing, which is the isn't always reflective of what they're actually offering. Um, I'm hearing this from a lot of students where they said, "Oh, I studied marketing in university. I studied communications. I studied computer science. Oh my God, how many computer science graduates have I worked alongside?" that just did they weren't cut they weren't made for private industry because they learned how to become a computer scientist but they did not learn how to become a, a developer for you know software for applications video games etc um so as a fun little um as a fun little exercise as when i was prepping for this podcast i designed my my tech curriculum that i would i would i would do if i was the dean of a about <laughs> computer sciences. <laughs> yes. Um, so I would actually, I would have a computer science degree program for people who want to become computer scientists, because there are people who want to do work in data science, artificial intelligence, you know, you need those thinkers, those mathematical thinkers. 
But the large majority of kids that I'm seeing going into computer science, they want to become web developers. They want to do video games. They want to do e-commerce. They want to do the things that don't necessarily require, you know, fourth year calculus. You know, they don't need that. Um, so this is what I would design for them. It would be called like perhaps like dev education. I don't know. But it would be 20% theory where you would have theory courses in ethics, you would have theory courses in psychology and commerce. You would also have a course in the history of computing, because if you don't know the history of computing, you're bound to repeat the mistakes that have been made. And there have been a lot of mistakes made in technology. I think you can agree with me on that one, um, with as we're seeing with Facebook and you know some of the mistakes that were made with uh, social media and things like that. Um, the rest would be, 70% would be practical, and the practical programs would be developed by industry professionals with over 20 years of experience minimum. Because another thing that I'm seeing in the, in the university systems is that when they hire professionals is they hire a professional with one year of experience and, and expect them to teach a full course load on, you know, computer technology or computer programming. And then 10% electives, let them take a music class if they want to take a music class or a religion class or whatever. But um, I think the, um, the other thing that I would do if I was creating a technology program is it would be a one and a half hour maximum class of teaching and there would be a one and a half hour sandbox every week where you get to work on a project and have a professor there if you need them. Just like you, like for the independent learner, that's great because they can work in a sandbox class. That's just, you know, how I would design it based on what I've seen in the industry. Graduates of that program, let me tell you, those people would be very ready to work in technology. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're coming at it from science. I'm coming at it from tech. It's two very different subjects because in science, obviously, it's different. I would imagine that a biology program is properly preparing, I would hope, a student to work in a, a pharmaceutical lab. Are they not? What and would you think? What the person needs to do in the lab, right? So I think okay. that the, so <clears throat> so that's an eternal question. So what's the right balance between the Lego blocks and the playing with the Lego blocks that you give them, right? So the Lego blocks, I say, is the information that you know you have to have a certain amount of information in order to be able to play with this information, put it in different contexts, do you know, uh, you know, so do transfers. So so this system is working this way and that. And now, you know, I have another system because I've discovered another organism. How is that going to fit in that new? And then kind of be able to transfer this and use and kind of. So, so what you're talking about is also application. So that's what you're talking about. So it's fine to know calculus, but can you apply this to do something that's functional? you know, when you want to do a web, web e-commerce, right? Well, probably not. That's not what you need to do, right? So that's fine. But when you have a program that is for computer sciences or biology, you don't know where the student is going to end up. So you kind of have to put the all bases kind of available. And I think that any student who comes out of any science degree at any university would say, I'm probably going to use about 30% of what I've learned because my research is going to be so focused on this 
you know, I'm not, I'm not going to use <laughs> the schnitz that I've heard about, you know, in my first year necessarily. And I'm just really going to focus on this particular thing that I'm going to get really good at. And this would be like a research position. If you want to work in a pharmacy, like a, in a pharmaceutical lab, then what you need is not necessarily, it depends at what level you want to work at. So if you want to develop new product, then you would need to do graduate research. You would need to be able to design hypothesis, design how to actually uh, prove your hypothesis right or wrong. So you have the right experiments, you have the right techniques in order to do it, the right control. So you kind of have to understand the whole process of how this is, but you also need to be able to communicate with the people that you work. You also need to learn how to manage a lab. You, if you have funding, you need to. So, so all of this is kind of peripheral to what you have to do in your position, but it's never taught. So we hope to make them do group work and then group work doesn't always work. And then they go like, oh, I don't want to work with that person. And as a professor, you have to say, okay, then who do you want to work with? Instead of saying, well, you know, tough luck, yep. <laughs> that person is awful, but you might have a, a situation where you have to learn how to, you know, accept that the professor then would probably need to have skills in managing difficult situation at work and kind of discuss this with the student, but do we have time for this? No. So, yeah. so this is what, what is always the problem. It comes back to time and it comes back to you're trying to get an education for a mass of people in the, in the basics of a subject so that hopefully some of it will, you know, is, is solid and they need to know how to, get, to use maths. And I, I still have students who don't know how to do percentage at year three. It's awful. Yeah. yeah. I hear this from a lot of professors who are like, oh, my, my, I have students who could write novels and I have students who can't spell. Now, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, I hear this a lot. But, you know, with, with regards to, you know, the universities getting that feedback, back in the day, the university would have said, if you want a job, go to college. If you want an education, come to us. And I think that that's um, yeah, now no. kind of strayed a little bit to where universities are starting to compete with yeah. community co colleges. It all, yeah, I think it comes down to money as well. So, so, so for example, the way that you see post-secondary education, I think there are diehards who will say, come for an education, go to university. And, you know, what type of education are you talking about? They're probably thinking about the factual sort of education rather than, you know, living in, on the street for three years is going to teach you completely different things, right? So, so, so they're like the... And this, the university is seen as this protection of knowledge and this place where knowledge is accrued and kept. And there's a repository that can be transmitted from generation to generation and increased from generation to generation as well. And I think it's a valid way of seeing the university. I think it's a less dynamic way of seeing what a university can do because I think it can do more as well. So technical college, like you said, are more in the present and actually more quick to respond to the job market. My understanding of it uh, is very limited, but I think that they, they are quicker 
to respond to what the market needs. And they're, they're more technical. So we'll show you how to do this well, right? And then that's perfect because that sometimes that's all that you need. <laughs> so I'll show you how to make a really fantastic website. I'll show you how to do animation, how to blend it all. So, and then you'll have a portfolio and then you can move on in your life, right? So, so those are really good things to do, but there's people now who think that the, so there's those that are not as diehard kind of pipe in your mouth, tweed jacket thinking, well, actually we can be more flexible. We can serve a, uh, you know, a, our community much better than we can. So, so there are universities who have, for example, develop, um, learning for the third age you know people who are retired have plenty of time they want to learn new things they don't want to just twill their thumbs at home and then they have programs for this so they can see for example that oh we need more <laughs> we need more nurses all right then let's you know have like a really quick program that's tied in with the industry so we give you a job and then we at the same time we train you in order to be a nurse so one day you're at work one day you're in class and then you can kind of you know, so so those would be much more um, flexible kind of services that we that universities could have a role with. But but then who who am I, right? So I have my view of my university, and the universities is strictly limited to science and generally biology and biosciences more exactly what others are. are so. MBAs were a good thing back in the day, I think, for pe getting people to, you know, be in leadership positions in industry. And it worked well in Quebec to have people that were French speaking, that were also, you know, in leadership positions and companies. So, so I think there are roles that the university can play. I think we can be more mobile, but it's hard to turn this machine around. It's this it's, yeah. vote is just going in one way. It's like, Come on, let's have little yeah. roles that can go different ways, you know. So it's really hard. To, this circles to get back. It, it circles back to the original discussion about salaries and things like that, where uh, you know my, my American friends were saying that you know just trying to get people paid properly, especially tenured profs in you know a tenured prof should never only be making fifty grand. They should be making a lot more, but uh, that that's again ingrained in these uh, antiquated uh, systems. Um, what about the the uh, you know since we I really did want to to stay on students for a second here, which is distance oh, wow. education is something that uh, people have complained a lot about, especially students. I think it's been easier, a little bit easier for professors to adapt. I think students. Um, I go back to a, uh, I talk to all my Uber drivers and a lot of them are students and I always ask them, how do you find it? Like, what do you think? And they hate it. I mean, they hate it with a passion. Uh, what's been your experience? I would imagine that you must have been teaching via distance for a little while, eh? Absolutely. To be honest, it's quite mixed, actually. So if you poll the students from the, from the latest kind of studies that have been going out is that uh, some students would rather just stay at home and avoid the hour on the bus and the hour they're back and uh, there and back again. And, you know, it's quite convenient, especially for early classes. So the, the quality of the courses that are being offered is quite different. 
as well from one prof to another because it's completely new and some profs have you know more more favorable to tech for example or different things and and generally it's made university easier i think i don't know if it's the online teaching so grades have slightly gone up <laughs> because i don't know if it's because of the exams i don't know if it's the pos the possibility of cheating on exams or if if it's just because during the pandemic professors i think as a whole but perhaps i'm wrong again have kind of pulled back on so they've been more flexible and they've pulled back on content for example in their class so i can't cover all of this and you know one zoom here one zoom there i can't do it so they kind of pull back on content so maybe that this it's it's easier ish i'm not sure actually i could it's I, funny because i surprised be by people <laughs> no but it's funny because um whenever i have a professor on we talk about education i always go to their rate my professor page because i find it amusing and um i don't know if you visited yours but i have and what i found fascinating is that people think that you're a tough professor now had i been your student i would have loved you because i love tough tough professors because i found it challenging i love a good challenge i love beating the exam i love you know doing really well some students uh, don't um so do you consider yourself a tough professor and if so um you know what's the good thing about it what's the bad thing about it i think it depends when were the comments made <laughs> if it was <laughs> 2013 probably i think i mellowed quite a bit so i think yeah. i you know i didn't understand why you know this is the time that you have to give out a certain work why can you not sort yourself out so that you will deliver that on time i don't understand that right yeah. so i so i was like Meh. <laughs> no <laughs> that's a yeah. zero for you and i i mellowed quite a bit on that it's like okay people have lives <laughs> sometimes life takes over so you know i'll give you more time to do it but crunch time come on i think most yeah. people actually sort themselves out so that's fine and when it's really rough then you really want somebody to be there and get your back and say yeah that's that's your life's a shit house at the moment <laughs> sorry mm -hmm. uh sort yourself out then i'll help you around right yeah, I think there has to be a, a just a milieu, as we would say, because I think back in the day, there were times where professors were just even, I would say, ignorant to, to the, the student's success. I mean, I've, I've, I've been in classes and I've heard of stories of professors that just didn't give a crap about the students. I've also seen the opposite where they were coddled to the point where they couldn't uh, do things by themselves. And, and, you know, we see this a lot in the primary and high school systems. I did teach at the primary level. Um, yeah, yeah, it carries on through university. <laughs> well, and that, that's the thing, right? Where, you know, at one point I, I was um, helping out someone with, with grading uh, university papers. And, um, and I said, wow, I said this, you know, this, this essay is full of spelling mistakes. And she was like, yeah, we, we, we don't mark those anymore. And so this is a problem, uh, again, that I think we're seeing in certain contexts. So there has to be a just a media because you're not preparing people for the real world either if there's, if there's, if the, if the policies are too lax, in my opinion. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I, it, it's a constant struggle. What's too relaxed and what isn't? And you know, generally, I'll err on more relaxed than not at the moment because mm-hmm. it's just the thing is like if I have twenty students, that's easy to manage. I have five hundred and fifty now. Yep. Am I gonna, you know, get hung up on every little, you know, things that happen? So I was like. No, so you kind of design policy to be as flexible as possible so that logistically, so so that students feel like when something happens, you got their back, so you're, you're seriously there for them. And I think that's kind of where I want my students to, to what I want my students to feel in my class. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not here to punish you. I'm not trying to ram this thing down your throat. I'm just, you know, I know you're a human being. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes, like, I don't know if I, I I go with this muffin thing. I think somebody said this muffin comparison with the students that they're all different muffins. And, yeah, I have to cook them according to the recipe, you know, for right. a certain amount of time. Not all of them will have cooked by the end. And some will have overcooked <laughs> before the end of it, right? So, but, you know, they're all different. So I kind of have to sort it so that most people will have cooked. <laughs> in the end of right. The but, yeah, it's a position that I don't envy, that's for sure. But so, so you try to be as flexible, which means that when... The thing is that students should... You should have, you should, they should be partners in their education, right? So you, it shouldn't be just you educating them. <laughs> it has to come from them as well. So, so this is something that kind of, I, I kind of had to work on where I was kind of giving them the structure and they had to like go through this structure. And, you know, if they didn't, then they were kind of pulled out, <laughs> out of the oven. <laughs> but, right. But now I'm, I'm more of a, look, we're partners in this. I'm giving you this structure. I'm, I'm telling you all in advance, this is how it's going to happen. The communication, I'm weekly telling them, well, do you remember, you have to do this and do that. And, and I understand that this actually helps me if I have an agenda that pops, pops out on my Monday <laughs> Windows you know, screen of my computer telling me, well, this week you have this, 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 because it's helpful. Sometimes you forget you have so many things that you're juggling with your life, right? So if I have my dentist telling me, you know, tomorrow you have your, <laughs> your appointment. Do you remember your appointment? Yes. Yes. Thank you. No, I have forgotten, <laughs> you know? So I think that's helpful. And the students are like that as well. So yeah. communication, as long as you communicate your, what you expect of them and when they need to provide the things that they need to provide, uh, I think most of it is there, right? And it's for them after that to organize themselves in order to achieve, you know, kind of what what is required because you've ingrained so much flexibility. You can watch, you can come to class or you can watch it, you know, because I record it or you can just listen to the, you know, to without even watching it or you can just, redo the readings if you want you know however it works out for you do it like that but at the end this is the midterm and it's going to be there if you 
you know, if your house is on fire and you can't do the midterm, it doesn't matter. We'll put the weight of the midterm on your final. You don't need a medical note. If you have the flu and you have massive diarrhea the day of the midterm, don't go to the doctor to get a doctor's note. I don't want to know. You don't need to tell me. Just don't do the midterm. It's automatically going to be put on your final. So, right. you know, you kind of, yeah, yeah, your your dog's died. I don't need to know. You don't want to do this this work. To, but so the weight is going to be put at the end. So, so there's always a way to actually reorganize things. Yeah. And generally, the students are really receptive to this. They actually do the work. They try to do it well. They're, you know, I'm not worried. Actually, you know, when people say, oh, they're not ready for work and all of this. And I'm like, was I? <laughs> That's, I was just, you know, it's, it, I was just about to say to play devil's advocate, which is that, um, the what you just said about being a partner and the student has to be a partner in their own education is that it's not on the university to prepare you necessarily for work either because one of the things i just wrote about in a blog article which is if you're studying technology computer science and you're not learning how to code in a program that's high in demand in the industry right now learn it on the side for your own education that's not necessarily on the university because they're going to teach you the foundation of everything you need to know and that can be applied as well so i think yeah i think at a certain point you have to say well you know um if a student is really keen on a particular career and they already know in the university they want to do xyz they'll learn what they need to learn from you as a professor but on the side they might read up on you know, something else related to your field. Uh, they might nerd out on their, they might buy their own microscope like me and nerd out and, and do their <laughs> own thing on the side, which, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I, this is all stuff that you can do. We have so many, I think students today, you know, you said that you record your lectures. I mean, we didn't have that. You couldn't, you weren't even allowed to bring a tape recorder into your lecture. You'd get kicked out. Um, you weren't allowed to have somebody else take the notes. You had to attend. And if you didn't attend the lecture, you, you got a zero. You, 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 would, you would fail, potentially, the class if you were not there every single class. So we have a lot more liberties today, I think, as students. They have more adapt, um, adaptability, accessibility. You know, you can be a visual learner today. You can be somebody who, like you, is more independent. And I think independent learners can, can still learn pretty well today. So I think there's that. Uh, so um, we're going to go a little bit over time here because I want to talk quickly about the role of the university in the community. And the reason I want to bring it up is because um, I think, like you said earlier, you know, courses for seniors, things like, you know, free lectures for the community, um, giving back to the community, being a part of it, because my negative impression of the university particularly in, in computer science, is the, the role of gatekeeper. Um, back in the day, you didn't need a computer science degree to work for the government. Now you do. Right. Uh, women were, made a larger part of the workforce. Now they don't. Because what happened is at the dawn of um, computers being introduced in the household, boys were given computers at Christmas. Women were not. Uh, girls were not. And so what happened is when the university started their computer science programs, all the boys were far more advanced than the women. So we saw fewer and fewer women going into the profession because it was mostly boys going into computer science programs. And the universities ended up act acting as the gatekeepers as, as they do today. 
So I think we need to move away from that and go back to, you know, the days where universities had more of a a role in the community and, um, you know, like you said, uh, targeting, um, you know, courses for seniors. Back in the day, I used to sneak into lectures. <laughs> I snuck into um, a neuroscience lecture at Laurentian. Um, what was his name? Dr. Persinger. Do you, do you know him? No. At, at Laurentian. He's he's wacky. He's crazy. But he's he's one of the best neuroscientists in the world. Anyway, I, I used to sneak into his lectures. And then I snuck into like film studies lectures. You know, um, you shouldn't have to sneak into a lecture. I think that there's times when you should have open lectures for for the public. Uh, what do you think about that? No, I think it's a good idea. I think it, it the, the thing is security, which is always a one right. that's you know, yes. quite difficult. And yeah. so security is a big issue here. So you would have to register. I think people can't just walk into classes because, you know, insurances and all the faff, that min faff that goes with it. So, so for that, I think it's more difficult, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to. So, so, so we have special students, for example, so you can register as a special student and not follow any particular, you know, but people are paid to, to, so that university wouldn't want people to just walk in and, you know, attend. Lectures. Oh, no, I mean, more like uh, seminars, you know, like uh, public seminars, like on the top on various educational topics, uh, yeah, religion I, I in, in the East or whatever, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so like one of the ideas ha I've had as, as in my coordinator of teaching innovation position is to actually at the at the beginning of the year, well, what we call like a school year would mm -hmm. be to have like um, a colloque de la rentrée, like a okay. you know school back to school kind of forum, right? Mm -hmm. Where for a couple of days or maybe one day, you know, then people from the area, whether Carleton, New Ottawa, or Algonquin College, or everybody, so we could have a theme, right? So the theme this year is, I don't know, flowers, whatever, it doesn't matter. And then people would present research that has, you know, to do with flowers, but for a lay audience. And then this would allow our professors to kind of present themselves to our students, if our students to understand what's going on, perhaps for a graduate student to practice kind of their research as well, you know, talking to a, a public and then to have like an open day where people can come and visit the labs and, you know, out of the community. So, so I'm, I'm hoping that this can be done. The, the difficulty is that I, I don't understand. So there's like, um, I don't know how the university is perceived in, in, so most of our students have parents who went to university, mm -hmm. so they're not kind of not afraid of university. And what I would really want to encourage is people who've never been to university to come on campus and say, look, it's not magical. <laughs> Anybody can do this. And that's quite difficult to do. It's probably easier for your university com to come out with. It's a it's probably more I don't know um, attractive to come on campus and feel like you're welcome, right? You can use our library. That's okay, right? Mm -hmm. right? 
So I don't know. I don't, I, I've never really thought about how to engage the community more. The thing is that we're so split for time already, you know, every minute counts. So having the, so outreach, outreach was never seen as a good thing and it's becoming a good thing now. So if you were going to do a lot of outreach as a professor, that was never counted as like, that's your own time, mate. You know, that doesn't really count. <laughs> it's, it's whatever, it's wasted. We're not going to consider that for a promotion or anything, right? But I think it's more more and more appreciated now that this is what we have to do as universities in order to be able to kind of pull people in. Yeah, I want to talk about that really quickly here. Um, but I want to mention uh, Nipissing University in North Bay in the 90s and late 90s used to, one of the ways they did outreach with the community is that they would have invited speakers, invited guests at the university. So I saw, for example, uh, Lee Maracle, who was an in- Indigenous writer, um, when she wrote her book, I Am Woman, one of the first known books at the time from an Indigenous woman's perspective, which was really cool. And I was not a university student at the time. And I went to that lecture because it interested me and it got me into the doors at Nipu, which was cool because I'd never stepped really foot inside there, you know. So um, I think having things like, you know, special guests or book lectures or things that are not necessarily perhaps a class or having, you know, an astronomy teacher teach like, hey, here's a, th- a, a one, hour, one and a half hour intro to the solar system. Come on in. I think you're gonna, you would get a lot more members of the public, especially working class people who perhaps are mechanics and wouldn't have sent their kids to university, but now have more of a, a better perspective. Yeah, I think that'd be interesting. I mean, the, the things do exist already where people meet in the pub and then there's a, somebody who's presenting, you know, who's talking about a subject. I, I know there's one in Quebec, um, in Montreal that, is virtually every month and it seems to be quite interesting but i can't go because i'm not quite there they used to do that here at u ottawa as well where they would have like a, a cafe and you'd, you'd just be you you could go it's after working hours you know um so i think they do exist uh, there, there's not a whole lot of them i don't know how well it's marketed so i don't know who it reaches i probably the university population that it reaches so that's a little bit of a shame for that. But it's very difficult to go into, like, a, I don't know. I mean, uh, how do you market this, right? So who, where do you go to to invite people in, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's a whole lot of people working industry or uh, construction workers who might want to have engineers, you know, talk about certain things. Oh, I don't know, you know, or like you said. I hate to say it, but Facebook. Facebook is, it's it's interesting. It's the, uh, I, I wrote a little blurb about this on LinkedIn the other day. It's that, you know, everybody is like anti-Facebook right now, uh, pro-Twitter from a, 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 in, in terms of academia. Oh, you've but got You've got off for like 20 Did seconds. I? 
<laughs> oh, sorry. Am I, are we are we still good? I think we're still good. Yeah, yeah, we're, you're we're good. still recording. So it is just, um, I think it's five seconds. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. What well, what I was saying is that there's a lot of anti Facebook sentiment, but the working class is all on Facebook. Um, there are plenty of of you know artisan groups, uh, working class groups. Uh, all of PEI is on Facebook. I swear to God. Um, you know, so because I'm moving there, so I joined a group where you can ask uh, any resident any question. So like, where's the best dentist or whatever. So it's it's really interesting. So yeah, I think it is a, you're right, it is a marketing play, um, which brings me to the last topic, which is science communication, because we do have to talk about it. Uh, you do a lot of it. You mentioned that there's more um, acceptance of, and even I would say persuasion of scientists uh, to do science communication. There are now grants to do science communication, which has never been the case in the past. Um, I know scientists even in Ottawa who got grants to do science communications. So it's a whole new thing. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? No, I think it's great because we've seen that, you know, there was a huge dichotomy in how we understand science and how we live in science and academia. It's really closed up kind of a community. And then that doesn't percolate outside of our little close-knit community. So I think that Obviously, even with campaigns for like uh, information with the pandemic, that was atrocious. You know, how how can such fallacies can be going around the globe, but not the right information? And how do you present that information for people to to be more palatable? I've seen a presentation on the news, on the news sometime during the pandemic where they put one slide after another. I think there must have been 20 with figures, you know, like graphs and, you know, things going up and things going down and, you know, x-axis, y-axis, not even labeled. And you didn't know what it was all about. It was like, and the person who was talking was they're just talking. They didn't actually talk about the whatever was being presented as a result. And, and you know, that was like a whole class of result in this, in this five-minute interview, it was completely mad. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, what are they doing? <laughs> well, that, and that's, that's because the media, I think, you know, I think they, 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 they what's the expression, lost the ball or dropped the ball a few times. No, I think it was but... somebody from the public health and it was like <laughs> a TV oh. presenter going like, Whoa. Oh. <laughs> Do you think, um, because, yeah, the pandemic is a whole other, that's something that I think we could do a whole podcast episode on, 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 on the challenges of communicating right, pandemic that. Pandemic aside. Pandemic <laughs> aside. Let, let, let's move that. Yeah, let's move beyond that because, um, you know, I, wa- I want to give a, a, a bit more concentration on the stuff that isn't related to the pandemic only because there's so many criticisms about and, and, and challenges with communicating a pandemic because the the point is people have believed in pseudoscience for a very very long time this isn't new like this this fake news and and this um you know this belief in in fake cures and all that that's that's not new the social media has made it um worse and worse and worse but it's also given scientists and um the ability to communicate the actual science behind things, whether that's during a pandemic, but also about, like I said, you know, the, the solar system, microscopic creatures, um, weather, uh, you know, Absolutely. Um, all this beautiful... There's many animations on YouTube about science oh as there is now, God. right? Whatever you it's... want, there's an animation about it. It's wow. Amazing. 
it's you know it's I really did not amazing. that animations didn't exist <laughs> when yeah. I was younger. and I never mind you know even like simple diagrams it was yeah. just a make it up in your head because it's not existing nowhere <laughs> But also the one-on-one -on -one relationship, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I, I consider many scientists on Twitter my, my friends now because I, I'm communicating well, with people that... It's funny for me that you say that as if scientists were some other creatures living Absolutely. in another world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but they were. But they were. And, and, and you, I think you, you even said it yourself, which was the university was kind of a silo for a long time. And even science, in a way, was kind of siloed from the rest of the world. And now scientists okay. are blending in. You're being generous. I think there was a lot of uh, elitism. Elitism? Yeah, elitism, no? yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's still there, to be honest. Yes, you know, I agree. We'll never understand this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As if science was, you know, so complicated. The noble brain cannot penetrate yes. it. It's ridiculous. But, um, but so now, obviously, you know, <laughs> it's not the case. And I think that more and more people who are actually uh going into science they're uh that they, they don't have that sentiment so <laughs> i hope so i mean i yes and no i see it a lot on twitter i see and you know one of the things that uh i mean since we're gonna we're gonna talk about the pandemic but uh, um since we're on the topic uh like it or not <laughs> the one of the things i do see on twitter a lot from young scientists is talking down about people who don't understand and that is, yeah, I see yeah. as a problem. I don't I understand that. that. Yeah, I see like, that as oh, a... they don't know about RNA? Of course they yeah. don't know about RNA. I don't know yeah. how to change the oil in my car. Am I stupid? No. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'd like to get away from, where I think science communication fails dramatically, is when you start inciting people to to uh you know to make it political or to make it about the person's yeah, uh, that intelligence or that yeah. yeah that drives me crazy this and condescending kind of yeah how did they not know this they don't know because nobody told them ever and even when <laughs> they did they one of the things it, well and one of the things that people's first experiences in science if they if they didn't study it is usually with a, a family doctor or a dentist. It's usually somebody in the medical field. If you've had a really bad experience with a, with a family doctor, which a lot of people in Ontario have, um, you're going to start to distrust medical authority and by extension science. So I think we need to, you know, uh, do a little bit more of out, outreach and, and build trust. Um, and how do you think would be the best way to build trust for science? Gosh, I don't know. But I like this. I, I, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with you that trust is a big issue at the moment. I think that a lot of people are feeling like technocrats are ruling <laughs> over their heads with things that they don't understand or they don't agree with or, you know, they don't recognize that world. So they feel like disengaged from this world. And I don't think just science, I think generally everywhere. But um so building trust, I don't know. I think it's just going out there and being humble and meeting people where they are, right? Instead of expecting to bring them up to where we think we are. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, a, it's like I, don't, I don't know. Meet it is the eternal question. Are. Respect people for who yeah. they are and you know what they know. I mean, people are clever. The fact that they don't know something doesn't mean not, means nothing. 
I, I had a guest on, I think, it, yeah, it was a guest that I had on the show and he was saying how, um, you know, he, he never discounted people's intelligence, even if they were hard science deniers, because they spent a ton of time researching Gosh, yeah. things like flat earth or whatever it is that they were passionate about. So it's not because they weren't intelligent enough to learn. It was because there is an obvious trust issue. So I think trust is really the big the big thing that needs to be overcome in proper communication of, of science. There's that, and there's also making sense of your, you know, logic also. Mm. So, so, so sometimes logic goes out the window, and that's where I struggle the most, actually, because okay. if something is, if you don't, who, who is it who is saying that? If you don't come to a conclusion out of sense making you can't come out of that hole without making with sense do you know what i mean if you come to a conclusion that is not uh, based on something that makes sense mm -hmm. then whatever your beliefs are because at that point they're beliefs right. then you can't come out of it with somebody giving you sense because sense means nothing to you. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yes, 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 yes. Okay. I, I know what you mean. So essentially, if you don't believe something that's based in reality. Yeah. Like, is, that, is that more accurate? If the earth is flat, if you yeah. believe the earth is flat, you didn't come to that conclusion using sense. <laughs> right, know. right, right. You, and so whatever research you've done, you know, it's just, I don't know how you can come to that conclusion, but whatever research is done that you've done was based on falsities. So mm -hmm. perhaps you can prove those false and then take that person out of this kind of uh, concept of flat earth, but that's not what they want. So, mm -hmm. so, so is it trust? I, I don't know where it comes from, to be honest. Or is it just, you know, I'm a rebel. <laughs> I have no idea. Well, there's that too. And I say this as a rebel myself. <laughs> and there's such a minority of people, right? Most yeah. people are like, is this really going to hurt me or not? Mm. <laughs> you know, and they like, uh, how, tr how true is this? I mean, people have done things really wrong with the limit of mind before. And we didn't know. And it was horrific. And you telling me you've done all the tests, really, <laughs> you know, have you really done them? So, yeah. so that's the trust issue. So I understand that. And that's kind of making sense of, yeah. You know, so it's, so it, it's based on your experience and analyzing what's real, <laughs> right? Which is, uh, yeah, which is a challenge for people who are not used to the scientific method or things like that either. Yeah, right. You can explain that if you can. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the other challenge. Clearly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> After all, science communication is about communication. It's not necessarily. I mean, it's a two. It's a two part term. It's science, yes, but it's also communication, which I think trumps everything. If you can't Absolutely. communicate it, it's not really getting the science across. So, so yeah. use simple language. Yeah. So, so that kind of communicating to teach, that's not what people want. They don't want to be right. taught. Entertainingly. Right. Yes. Yes. Entertainment is 
so awesome. TikTok. I love the I don't know if you've been checking out the science on TikTok. No. Oh my god. You should join TikTok after this recording. Your kids will probably tell you about it. But the science on there is oh, it's fantastic. It's just I had a, a science TikToker, TikToker Sarah who uh tiktoker tiktoker okay uh who joined me and and she uh she does the science communication for the guelph turf institute i think it's called anyway uh very 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 great at tiktok and and uh communicating it through memes you know you use memes popular culture jokes uh it's great and it's not for everybody it's not for everybody not everybody is a good communicator no no i i couldn't make a meme to <laughs> well on that note um this is by far the longest podcast i've recorded so i hope that uh, my editors are going to be okay with this one uh but i think we could have gone on and on and on i think there's a lot to touch on in terms of both education science communication um both from the standpoint of professors and students i think it's a two-part discussion when you when you start talking about education i think that uh you know you it sounds like you're doing the best that you can with the tools that you've got and especially with the distance learning challenge which i think was hard for every professor out there uh but it seems that you've adapted well to it um but anyway i thank you again for coming on the show and i invite people to listen to beyond the test tube um, and I'll put links to it uh, in the show notes. So thanks again for coming on the show, Elin. Thank you so much, Judy. That was great. My pleasure.